Thank you. Let's open our Bibles to Second Thessalonians. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, if you'd pass that to the center aisle, and we will collect those and pray with you and for you. We're grateful if you're visiting with us today. Uh, you've come on a special Sunday, in my mind anyway, and that is um, we're going to be looking at making a fresh commitment in the coming year uh, to the Word of God in our life. I have a couple things in your bulletin. I'll just go ahead and mention uh, the, the preaching card for the next uh, three months and also our fighter verses for 2022. And I uh, would uh, just point you to Romans uh, 5, 1 through 11 on, that, uh, on the fighter verses. And we'll be talking more about how do I memorize uh, this chapter. And we can do this as a church family and grow together in the grace and knowledge of Christ. But for the last... Uh, 20 years or so, I've given uh, usually on the last Sunday of the year a challenge called every year the year of the Bible uh, in order to encourage all of us to, to take a, a look at this important uh, discipline in the Christian life and that is uh, my need to read and to hear and to study and to memorize and to meditate upon the Word of God in my life. And so uh, we have Bible reading programs uh, available in the uh, foyer, but all you have to do is a Google search and you'll have more choices than you can imagine. We've often joked that they even have a Bible reading program for left-handed bowlers. So you can find one, and I'm confident of that. And the best one is this, the one that you use. So get there. Get in the Word. Uh, even now, if you're... If it's. Uh, grown a bit cold and you haven't been in God's Word in some time, now would be a wonderful day uh, to renew that commitment and certainly as we look at a new year to be men and women of God who stand upon the authority of His Word. This morning I want to focus on loving the truth. Loving the truth. Do you think of the Bible in this way? Listen to Pastor John Piper. God talks to me in no other way, but don't get this wrong, He talks to me very personally. I open my Bible in the morning to meet my friend, my Savior, my Creator, my Sustainer. I meet Him and He talks to me. I'm not denying providence, nor not denying circumstances, I'm not denying people, I'm just saying that the only authoritative communion I have with God with any certainty, comes through the words of this book. That is good counsel. How important is the Bible to you? Do you love the Bible? Not as a lucky charm that you carry around in your hand. Not, not, not as a, some superstitious book to beat people or spirits off with. I'm talking here about uh, loving God's Word because... It's the most precious and valuable resource that you could possess. Like the psalmist said, where he desired God's word more than gold, much than, than fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. At the halfway point in the Bible, Psalm 119 stands as a tremendous tribute to the Word of God. In fact, I would urge you to read this uh, later today. In the afternoon, uh, sometime this evening, Psalm 119. It's 176 verses. Take about 20 minutes to read it. And I want you to listen to one verse after another as this psalmist goes on record that the Word of God is the most important um, resource of his life. But throughout this psalm, 
he states his love for God's word. He says in verse 47, I, I find my delight in your commands, which I love. You can love God's commands. We should love God's commands. When he says, don't do that, stay away from that, stop doing that, do we bow up in resentment or do we say with the psalmist, I'm so glad, God, that you would speak this word into my life and you would put boundaries for me to live in for my good and for your glory. I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 48, I lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day long. Verse 113, I hate the double-minded but I love your law. I love your testimonies. I, I love your commandments above gold. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Great peace have those who love your law, verse 165. And on and on it goes. So we come back to this theme of every year, the year of the Bible, every day, the day of the Bible, um, as a means to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be challenged in this way regularly. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul is answering questions that have come to him from this beloved congregation. He loved the Thessalonians, and they loved him. And Paul is giving uh, them some clarifications on, on how to live the Christian life, how to live the Christian life in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so in 1 Thessalonians, he speaks of the return of the Lord that this is the blessed hope of the believer. We're to comfort one another with these words that our Lord is returning. So what are we to do in the meantime? We're to live obediently. We're to walk humbly. We're to seek to honor God and all the commitments of our life. We're to make Jesus Christ known as salt and light. It's not complicated. I'm not saying it's easy. There's a lot of dying that needs to be done, dying to self, dying to what we want, surrendering to God, having our minds renewed by the Word, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul calls the Thessalonians to stand firm and live productive and fruitful lives for the glory of the Lord. Now, like many churches in the New Testament, the church in Thessalonica faced several, several challenges. One was um, uh, they were persecuted. Here in 2 Thessalonians, in chapter 1, verse 6, uh, Paul speaks of this. He says, since, since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. So he's, he's giving a resolve to this affliction that they're suffering, not for being criminals, but for being Christians, faithful to Jesus Christ. And he says to them, God will resolve this difficulty, the, the suffering you're enduring He's, he understands it all, and it will be handled in his way and in his time. You be faithful to the Lord, and don't take matters into your own hands. And so, um, they suffered persecution. I received an email this week from East Asia where new sanctions are being imposed um, among our brothers and sisters in Christ there where um, they're not allowed to view the internet to receive any type of Christian instruction that's not registered with the government. And so every aspect of control they're seeking to implement in order to guard their people and promote their agenda in this world. But throughout Christian history, there are examples of martyrdom for the truth, for the love of the truth, 
Charles Spurgeon wrote, remember that our Bible is a blood-stained book. The blood of martyrs is on the Bible, the blood of translators and confessors. The doctrines which we preach to you are doctrines that have been baptized in blood. Swords have been drawn to slay the confessors of them, and there is not a truth which has not been sealed by them at the stake or the block or far away on the lofty mountains where they have been slain by hundreds. It is but a a little duty we have to discharge compared with theirs. They were called to maintain the truth when they had to die for it. You only have to maintain the truth when taunt and jeer, ignominious names and contemptuous epithets are all you have to endure for it. little name-calling here. They died for the truth. So he encourages them that they would be strong as they suffered persecution. He also mentions false teachers, which were rampant in the first century and rampant today. And it, it seemed to be these false teachers seem to be responsible for circulating a letter that he mentions in chapter 2, a letter supposed to have come from Paul, he says in verse 2, to the effect that the day of the Lord had already come. So one of the traumas in Thessalonica was the day of the Lord had come and they had missed it. And so Paul painstakingly said to them, I don't want you to be ignorant about these things. He unfolded for them in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and now in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians that they had not missed the day of the Lord. And he explains how the second coming of Christ cannot come until the rebellion occurs. So this morning's message is set within the context of end time events. So... You didn't miss the day of the Lord because the great rebellion hasn't occurred and a man, the man of lawlessness hasn't been revealed and Jesus Christ hasn't come back a second time. So he explains this very carefully to them. And Christians are children of the day. We, we belong to the day of the Lord in the sense that that is our blessed hope. That Christ shall descend and every eye shall see him. And those who remain, those who have gone on in the Lord shall be resurrected to life, and those who remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Amen and amen. A modern version of this um, false teaching that Paul is dealing with is with regard to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Their founder, they, they were founded in the mid-19th century in 1800s, and their founder, Charles Taze Russell, first taught that the world would end in 1874, and then revised his calculations to 1914. And after this year had passed, his successor, Judge J.F. Rutherford, claimed that Christ did, in fact, come on October 1st, 1914. That's quite a claim, isn't it? But he came invisibly. Well, that's convenient. And contrary to Scripture, which says in Revelation 1-7, every eye will see him. It's a global event. On that day, according to Rutherford, he exchanged an ordinary seat at the Father's right hand for the throne of his kingdom. So, no second coming is to be expected. It has already taken place. To that we say, thumbs down. 
That is contrary to everything we find in the Word of God. Our blessed hope is that our, our Redeemer will return. So members in this church in Thessalonica were affected by both. They were affected by persecution, and they were affected by this false teaching, which created a group within the church that we could refer to as the loafers, because they didn't take seriously anything, and so many of them were backing off of commitments, and he deals with that in 2 Thessalonians 3, where he says, now we command you, brothers, verse 6, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. He's not fulfilling his responsibilities. He's not providing for his family. And Paul goes on to say with this, that if anyone will not work, let him not eat. That's a motivation to work, isn't it? I'm hungry. Well, work. Get off your backside and get after it. And so any view of the second coming that produces laziness and sloth should be rejected out of hand. That, that we have duties to fulfill. We have responsibilities to fulfill. Yet all the while and all of those duties and responsibilities, Jesus Christ is our hope. And whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're to do for the glory of Jesus Christ. Pastor Phil Newton once said that we must be ready for the future by living faithfully as Christians in the present. The future is important to consider or else we fall prey to the danger of living for the moment, which typically means living for yourself. So that's not what we're to do at all. So how are we to uh, sift through the, the truth claims that we hear in this world? How are we to know that I'm standing in the truth and I'm loving the truth? When we live in a world, to quote Scar from the Lion King, the truth is in the eye of the beholder. Is it? No, we're standing on truths as we, 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 we sang together this morning about these ancient words. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. We're standing on truth that has been given to God's people that we might not grope in the darkness. So let's look at 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to give it my best effort. One of the most difficult passages to interpret in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to give it our best effort. And I'm, I'm, I'm really basing this message off of verse 10. And I want to go ahead and move there, and then we'll come back and start uh, at the beginning of the chapter. So he's talking about uh, the progressive um, deterioration of things that we know in this world, wicked deception for those who are perishing. And what is our hope when we hear so many truth claims so many people saying, this is the way to go, this is the way to go. What keeps us from being sucked up into the vortex of that tornado and where we could stand? Like Daniel did when he opened the doors three times a day towards Jerusalem and prayed to his God, even while living in a foreign land. And that was during the time of Psalm 137 eloquently expresses, how do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And what I'm wanting to say this morning is that you and I must love the truth. Oh yes, we're challenging one another today to read the Bible, to hear the Bible, to, uh, to redeem your commutes in your car uh, with things that bring you on in the Christian life. But ultimately, behind it all must be a love for the truth. Why are we reading our Bibles if we don't love what we're reading? 
Now, I'm, I, I want to admit that not every morning's a hallelujah morning for me when I'm reading the Bible. But that's, that's where I know I must go. It is the ballast that keeps us from being tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. Is that I'm tethered to the Word of God, which is the same. And even though the grass may wither and the flower may fade, the Word of our God abides forever. It's my only hope of seeing through all the confusion in this world to see the one who reigns over it all. And so, you can't love what you don't know. And so, get there. Get there. In your private worship time, be faithful in, in your assembly with this body, in your small groups. So, Let's love the truth. And let me kind of put my thoughts on uh, several points here. The first would be this. Loving the truth to strengthen our hope. Loving the truth to strengthen our hope. Now, he says in verse 1, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him. This is probably referring to the rapture when the Lord gathers His people together. There's a lot of disputes on when the rapture will be, but it will be that time when, as described in 1 Thessalonians 4, where the Lord Himself will descend and those um, who have died in the Lord will be gathered up to Him and those who remain in that last generation will be gathered together in Christ. So Paul goes on to say, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in your mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So many of them were disturbed, and, and Paul is bringing them back to say, don't be disturbed, you haven't missed the day of the Lord, let me explain to you this, why. And, um, and so let me, let's just go ahead and note, I mentioned the Jehovah's Witness and their founder establishing a date that Christ would re return and then become rather in, ingenious or foolish in their speculation on when he would come. Church history is littered with people who have claimed that they know when the Lord's going to come. Guess what? And they're all wrong. Jesus said that no one would know the hour except the Father. So any date setter, we need to categorize in our mind, he's out to lunch. I'm not going to listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So Paul is dealing with that kind of mindset when he says, don't be quickly shaken in your mind or alarmed as if you've missed anything. If you were in Jesus Christ, you belong to him. John Stott mentioned in his commentary that Henry Ford was in a witness box in 1919 in his libel suit against the Chicago Tribune. And he declared while under oath, history is bunk. <laughs> Somebody else once suggested that the most accurate chart of the meaning of history is the set of tracks made by a drunken fly with feet wet with ink staggering across a white piece of paper. They lead nowhere and reflect no pattern of meaning. That is not the Christian view of history. History is not bunk. History is moving forward to an appointed time of fulfillment as God has decided and will bring to pass. 
As followers of Jesus Christ, we look to the Scriptures, and Jesus Himself prayed that His followers would be sanctified by the truth, and that we are a part of a great gathering of God's people at the end of time. But now we live in the here and now. Now we are called by His name in our generation. But let's just be reminded, taking a step back, that God is the, the God of the Bible is the God of history. He's referred to in the Scripture as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jesus himself prayed that his followers would be sanctified by this truth. He chose Israel out of the nations to be his covenant people. He came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and Jesus was born when there was a Caesar named Augustus, when a tax was being established. And to quote the Apostles' Creed, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, who really ruled over Jerusalem at the time of Jesus was crucified, Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, and on the third day he rose again, and having sent his spirit, has for more than 2,000 years been pushing the church out to proclaim this glorious message. The God of the Bible is the God of history. If you want to be on the right side of history, align your life with the purposes of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you'll always be on the right side of history. One day, known only to the Father, when the gospel has been preached to all nations, Jesus Christ will return. So, history is linear. It has a purpose. It has a bullseye. It has a target. It's not circular or cyclical. We believe that it will come to a planned end, a grand finale, when those in Christ will be before Him forever and ever with Christ's return, the resurrection, the judgment, and the kingdom to come. And the New Testament throbs with the triumph of this kingdom. I hope that brings some excitement to you today. You, you go to the end of the Bible, and it's clear. We win. We're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So Paul, is not, he's not writing as a history professor. He's, he writes as an apostle, and he's shepherding a church And he's trying to help them navigate the challenges of living for Christ under persecution and under false messages concerning the coming of the Lord. So the the second coming and our being gathered to him is, is, is our blessed hope. We have a life to live and a death to die, don't we? We have a certain hope in Jesus Christ that if we believe that he died and rose again, we have eternal life in him, as Lonnie reminded us from Romans 10. Jesus Christ will come again with a shout of acclamation. The second coming of Jesus is a massive dose of encouragement for weary saints. We're to comfort one another with these words. So Paul is trying to guide the Thessalonians not to be quickly shaken loving the truth so that our hope would be strengthened. Did you come in downcast today? I'm reminded of the psalmist who who said, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. Stand in the hope that He gives. If I had to boil down all the statements of the New Testament about the second coming, this is what we would have. Jesus is coming again. He is coming personally. We do not know when He's coming. It's not a matter when He comes. He's coming for you one way or another. He will gather His own to be with Him, and He will judge the wicked. 
The first coming it has priority over the second in the sense that He accomplished redemption and has brought it to us. We know uh, what to do until He comes. We're to make disciples of all nations. We're to freely proclaim the gospel. We're to advance His kingdom in this world. And finally, that Jesus is in, is in control and history is His story. And we can be assured of this. He will take care of us till He comes. For many years, um, I have appreciated the ministry of Bob Russell. And in one of his sermons he shared about when his father passed away and the funeral was held on a cold, uh, blustery Pennsylvania day and the snow covered the roads and it prevented a funeral procession. So the funeral director told Bob, I'll, I'll take your dad's body to the grave. But, but Bob couldn't bear to, um, you know, not be at his father's burial. So he and his brother and their sons piled into a four-wheel drive vehicle and followed the hearse. And Russell recounted the event in this way. We plowed through 10 inches of snow into the cemetery, got about 50 yards from my dad's grave, and the wind was blowing 25 miles an hour. And the six of us lugged the casket down to the gravesite. We watched the body lowered into the grave, and we turned to leave. And I felt something was undone, so I said, I'd like for us to have prayer. The six of us huddled together, and, as I, and I prayed, Lord, this is such a cold, lonely place. And then I got too choked up to pray anymore, and I kept battling to get my composure. And finally, I just whispered, but I thank you, for we know to be absent from the body is to be safe in your warm arms. That's not throwing pennies in the wishing well. That's standing on promises. That's standing on the promises that God has given in His Word. Our, our loved ones in Christ are safe in the arms of God. And at death, the believer in Jesus immediately enters into the presence of God and enjoys cons- conscious fellowship with Him. Notice with me, secondly, loving the truth to protect against deception. To protect against deception. We often ask around here, if you were deceived, would you know it? No, you probably wouldn't, unless somebody pointed it out to you. And that's one of the wonders of God's Word, is that it points out when we're wrong, when we're deceived. He says in verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes, the apostasy comes. And here, this is referring to an end time event of something that we see around us all the time, and that is apostasy, people falling away from the truth, falling away from the living God. And then he mentions that this man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And I think this is quite clearly a a reference to an end-time event, an end-time person, an end-time antichrist. Who opposes and exalts himself, verse 4 tells us, against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Have we not seen on the pages of Scripture and even in history examples of of those who have sought to do this, even, even to this very moment? Paul goes on to say, remember when I was talking to you? We're not given the full back ground of what that means, but he says in verse 5, do you not remember when I, when I was still with you, I told you these things? 
So here he mentions this Antichrist figure, this man of lawlessness, the ultimate antinomian who, um, who they've talked about before. Verse 6, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. That God has a plan even for these end time, this end time antichrist. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. And how will he do? Well, not well, because the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So Paul links this antichrist figure, this falling away, this rebellion, with an antichrist figure with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so with his second coming, it really is a destruction. And I, I, I love this uh, of all evil and of submission to him. I love the, the expression, he will kill with the word of his mouth. No tanks, no military armament. The God who in the beginning said, let there be light, will say on that day, it's over. It's over. It's done. And so this uh, brings with it a lot of questions. He says in verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and then will his coming will his appearance of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan and all power and false signs and wonders. So yes, we are emphasizing hearing and reading and studying and memorizing God's word. How do we know, how are we to understand these kind of events? And I think it comes back to humbly loving the word of truth and living the Christian life. Again, I appreciate the commentary of John Stott and seeking to unpack the challenge of this passage as he's talking about, he, he mentions first this apostasy. What does apostasy mean? Well, he calls it rebellion in the ESV. It means this falling away from truth. We see it in the churches of Revelation who are riddled with compromisers of falling away from the truth. We face that same danger. If we're not loving the truth, we're susceptible uh, to compromise, we're susceptible to unbelief, and so God's means for His people is to stand on the truth. So this apostasy will come, a wholesale rejection of God's truth. A man of lawlessness is revealed. He's also mentioned in verse 8 as the lawless one. Uh, he opposes and exalts himself against God. We see that in Scripture, we see that in history. It says that he takes the seat in the temple of God, and scholars have debated this rigorously, and you can imagine why. Is this a temple in Jerusalem? Is it a reference to the church, which is called the temple uh, in which God dwells? Ephesians 2 tells us that. In this case, the Antichrist would soak into the fabric of the church, leading to false teaching, compromise, and apostasy on a wholesale level. I'm persuaded with commentaries who really, commentators who really see this not so much as a physical temple, but as a spiritual affront to God's rule and reign, which affects everything in the world to deceive from the true and living God. So the text that this man of lawlessness takes his seat 
uh, really shows complete lack of reverence and respect to the living God. And Paul reminds them of the previous teaching he had given them. And he said, do you, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So who is this man of lawlessness? You can imagine through history, there have been a lot of colorful speculations on who that would be. Um, there, many have set forth early in the Christian era that it's Muhammad and the conquest of Christian sites. Many of the reformers viewed the Pope as the Antichrist. Later on in history, world leaders like Napoleon and Hitler and Stalin. Opposition to, to God's rule and authority is the climate of this earth. So it's not hard to, to see those who want to usurp God's power and authority. Isaiah 14 speaks of the king of Babylon as one who wanted to ascend to, the, to, to heaven and to sit on the throne of God. During the second century, we don't, aren't really that familiar with that history in our view of the world, but uh, in, in the two centuries prior to Christ's coming, there was a Syrian king named Antiochus the, the fourth who was called Epiphanes, and he entered the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem and built an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a pig on that altar. And you can imagine how outraged the Jews were to, to such an action that he was indeed the Antichrist. Jesus referred to the abomination of desolation and refers us back to Daniel's prophecy where he mentions this abomination of desolation. And what I think is best is to really understand that Jesus and Paul and John in the book of Revelation reapply the prophecy of Daniel concerning this and that we see partial fulfillments of this all through history. But there, there, there comes an end time figure who will trump them all. Prophecy contains multiple fulfillments with one that will exceed them all. And Paul connects this final Antichrist to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill. How? With the breath of his mouth. Now, I, I think it's important for us maybe to step back and look at something else. And that's the Apostle John. And what he had to say in chapter 2, because of all the New Testament writers, the only writer that refers to this end time figure as the Antichrist is the Apostle John. And he does so in 1 John 2. And in verse 18, he says, children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Isn't that insightful? This world has seen Antichrist, those who have sought to reject and to repel uh, the, the sovereign rule of God. John goes on to say in verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So I, I think it's accurate, accurate for us to, to see in one sense that any message, any movement that rejects the deity of Christ, the salvation of Christ, is an antichrist spirit. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has, or the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You want to be on the right side of history? Declare without apology that Jesus Christ is your Lord and God. 
And you will, not, you will never be on the wrong side of history. Sometimes we hear that in some of the cultural wars today. You're, just, you're on the wrong side of history. Not if I'm standing on God's word, I'm not. Compared to cultural opinions that change by the moment, by the news cycle sometimes. So he mentions here restraining. What's keeping this from happening? Well, we see it um, throughout history, but with regard to this final rebellion, he says in verse 6, you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Well, this has caused a lot of consternation among commentators. What's restraining him? Three main explanations, Paul, in the preaching of the gospel, Rome and the power of the state. But I think this is reference to the work of the Holy Spirit and the sovereign plan of God to bring about his his purposes in his time. The Holy Spirit is moving in this world. The Holy Spirit is accomplishing the pur- purposes of God through his people. In the CSB study notes, a more appealing solution is to see the restrainer as God's Holy Spirit. In verse 6, the reference would be to the restraining force of the Holy Spirit, while verse 7 may refer to his personage. Either of these solutions could explain the shift in the gender from verse 6 and 7. Another possible variation of these views is that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit working through the church. Lastly, and quickly, loving the truth as a defense of our faith. If you, if you and I don't love the truth, we're not likely to defend it when it's challenged. In verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Verse 10, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth. Once again, we find in the Bible there's a perishing. There's a lostness that leads to perishing, which the Bible refers to as eternal judgment, eternal punishment, hell itself. There's a perishing. There's an urgency when you hear the Word of God. There's an urgency when we come together as God's people. Am I in the process of being saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, being conformed into His image, or am I perishing in my sins? And here Paul says that those who are deceived, they're perishing. Why? They refused to love the truth. You don't love what you don't know. You don't love what you reject. How do we reject the truth in our lives where we refuse to come under the authority of God's Word and our life begins to look more and more like Jesus Christ? We long for holiness. We long for His pleasure. We long for His approval. And what will happen invariably is if you seek to live faithfully for Jesus Christ, those who call themselves Christians become your enemies if they don't love the truth. You take a stand on a moral issue. You take a stand on integrity. And often it's those who are under the banner of Christ who turn on you and say, that's not the Jesus I follow. You dogmatic, judgmental people. Loving the truth as a defense of our faith. 
And if we don't love the truth, he says, this is the only power to escape the deception that fills this world. And to reject God's truth is a dangerous place to be. We want consciences informed and taught by the Word of God so that we're sensitive to the things that we face in this world. But if we reject the truth, what happens? Well, everything that we've seen this year in Romans 1 through 3, where there's a constant spiraling downward of of death and destruction and hopelessness. And here he says in an economy of words, verse 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion. Why? Because they'd rather follow lies than love the truth. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, I'd like to close um, with five points of application. The first is this, what I've been emphasizing for these minutes, and that is to love the truth in verse 10. The challenge of this text and this message is not merely to be acquainted with the truth, not merely to tolerate the truth. God's Word, would that it would do its work in us like a two-edged sword bringing us to conformity to Christ, that we would be men and women of the truth, pursuing greater knowledge of God's Word, standing on His authority, grasping for greater understanding of sound doctrine so that we would not be, as Paul described in Ephesians 4, like children blown here and there by every wind of doctrine, growing in discernment. Some things need to go in your life. that you might grow in discernment and be a greater servant of Christ. You cannot keep them if you're going to grow in the grace and knowledge of who He is. If we are to love the truth, again, we cannot love what we don't know. Secondly, verse 12 says we're to believe the truth. That when we open our Bibles, we are confronted face-to-face with truth that God has given, what are we going to believe? I pray that you would cast the anchor of your soul into the text of Scripture. And then thirdly would be, we don't grow in knowledge so we can win board games during the holidays about Bible subjects. We grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ in humility that we might represent Him and how we live Fourth would be conviction. That conviction would form as God's word takes root more and more into our life. And then finally, courage. Four times, I believe it's four times in Joshua 1, God says to Joshua, be strong and very courageous. And he says to Joshua, this is what's going to sustain you as you lead my people to to take the land that I've given to you. That this word of the This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate upon it day and night. Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Be strong and courageous. Fellow follower of Christ, may God give us a holy boldness in our generation to speak the truth in love and to stand there no matter what may come. So, I close with... That challenge, 
to bring the Word of God into your life, to begin with a set time every day, to cultivate a prayer life, to, to use the plan that fits you. That's the best plan, the one you use. To focus on content and not amount, to be accountable to someone. I would reemphasize the need to be in a connect group. If you're not in one, you need to be in one. I wouldn't trade the nine o'clock hour for any aspect of church life where we get together and share concerns and uh, joys under the fellowship of His Word. And by the way, that's where true fellowship occurs. When we're in the Word together, we're sharing life together in, in the Word. If you have a youth or a child, I would have them in Bible drill. When all is said and done, when you have children growing up in this, in this church family, children and youth, what do you want them to leave with? The Word of God anchored in their heart. I cannot think of a better ministry to, get that, to reach that objective than Bible drill. And I'm thankful for our Awana efforts as well. Uh, to be accountable to someone. To bring the Scripture into your daily conversations. To ask God to help you be a better witness in sharing how Christ has changed your life. To memorize the fighter verses this year. There are 11 of them. This is, I think, the smallest one we've ever had. That's, one, that's less than a verse a month. How do I do that? Well, it's not complicated. Bring it into your morning Bible time. Spend about three minutes of a, on it a day. And you're going to have the whole thing, I promise you, by December. To bring it into your life. To incline our hearts in this way. All I could say concerning Scripture is, its ultimate end is that you would come to know God's salvation. These things have been written that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in His name. I would point you to Him as the beginning to understanding what God has said to us in the riches of His Word. Would you bow with me in prayer? In these closing moments of surrender, in these closing moments asking God to search our hearts, O Lord, incline our hearts to Your Word. Give us a desire for it. Help us, Lord, to be like the psalmist who longed for it more than gold and was sweeter to him, more sweet than honey on the honeycomb. Open our eyes to see wonders there. Subdue our wills and give us an obedient spirit. Oh God, satisfy our hearts with a vision of yourself and that we would live our lives in pursuit of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. If there are needs on your heart, you come.